Welcome to Creation Conversations with Joe Hubbard and John Mackay. Join us each week as we answer your questions and common objections to the Bible, creation, and Noah's flood. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you're joining us from around the world. Welcome back to Creation Conversations. And yes, I am back, uh, having not been here the previous uh, two weeks. It's been, uh, what is it? It's probably been nearly six weeks or so since I was last on Creation Conversations, but it's good to be back and it's good to have an almost complete full team. Uh, Craig is uh, is not with us this morning. Am I right in thinking he's gone up to Jurassic Ark, John? Is that right? Well, he went to Jurassic Ark yesterday when it was forecast to be absolutely drenched, flooding, etc., because of climate change. Um, but nothing happened. But then again, before oh, yeah. that, it was forecast to be hot and dry, and that didn't happen either. So it's been a wonderful time listening to the evidence that the gurus haven't got it right. But he had a wonderful <laughs> time at Jurassic Ark. So we'd encourage all of you to go to our Jurassic Ark website and book yourself in if you live in Australia. Very good. Um, well, our topic today is uh, sort of a, a a bit more of a, of a general topic. We're looking at Noah's flood as a concept. Uh, we're going to be digging down into some of the claims surrounding Noah's flood, local or not, some of the comments that groups like Biologos, for instance, um, what, what they claim. We're looking at some of the supposed contradictions and some of the problems and trying to get a bit of a uh, a bigger picture. So I've got a few fossils to hold up and show you. Glenn's going to really kick things off uh, with a little bit of a story. But before we do all of that, let's actually uh, read some of the account of the global flood as found in the Bible in the book of Genesis. So we're in Genesis chapter 7 and we're going to uh, read from uh, verse 11 to 12 and then from 19 down to the end of the so Genesis chapter 7 starting at verse uh, 11 in the 600th year of Noah's life in the second month on the 17th day of the month on that day all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened and the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights and then skipping on to verse 19 to verse 24 the end of the chapter uh, it says in verse 19 and the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered the waters prevailed 15 cubits upwards the mountains were covered and all flesh died that moved on the earth the birds the cattle the beasts and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth and every man all whose nostrils was in the breath of the spirit of life that all that was on the dry land died so he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground both man and cattle creeping thing and bird of the air they were destroyed from the earth only noah and those who were in the ark remained alive and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days so if you get a chance uh, go and, and read the basically from uh, chapter 7 8 and 9 it's a much more detailed and full account of the global flood but that really sort of sums up the really key parts there was a great big flood and it covered the whole earth according to genesis chapter 7 and then of course we then go to talk about things like the fossils what fossils were formed during noah's flood versus 
fossils that weren't formed during Noah's flood. And so we have a, a fabulous fossil here. Um, let's see if we put it up on full screen here, Sam, while I hold this up. Um, some of you might have a guess as to what it is. Let's get it into, into focus. Uh, if you thought this was some kind of a, of a giant tooth, you'd be absolutely right. It's actually a mammoth tooth. It's uh, one of our European ones from up near Siberia. And uh, we get all sorts of what we call these sort of ice age type uh, bones and fossils that turn up all up and down the east side of the United Kingdom. Uh, and maybe this was formed during Noah's flood. And how would we tell? Particularly if we compare it against something like this rather massive oh, slab of um, fossil bones, a huge bone assemblage. Well, this is actually from the uh, Cretaceous. It's a type of Mosasaurus, which is one of those big, well, they're often called swimming dinosaurs, one of the big marine reptiles, right? It's a huge bone assemblage and really the key thing is to ask the question how big are these deposits you see this bone assemblage from the cretaceous which is found in morocco you can trace the cretaceous deposits all over the world they're the same beds uh, in fact probably the most abundant cretaceous deposit is the chalk which isn't surprising because that's what the word cretaceous is named after right creta is the latin word for chalk and you can trace the uh, chalk rocks all over the world and they're the same bed of chalk because they all sit on the same bed of sandstone and this was picked up by many people including professor derek ager who said really it's one of the biggest problems with the idea of slow gradual accumulation over millions of years and this is a secular academic professor who's pointing this out so when you find something like these beds you're uh, fairly confident that you're dealing with something that is the result of a global flood um less so when it comes to something like your teeth i mean these are well, the great thing about teeth is that they're pretty much fossils already, even when they're still in the mouth of the animal. Um, they don't actually need very much doing to them in order to preserve them. They're already made out of stone. They don't need to have much done to them to preserve them. And so where do we find teeth like these? Well, essentially, they're almost lying just on the surface. They're in a, in a, in a group of area called permafrost, which is effectively partially frozen mud or mud that is frozen for part of the year. And so this is found inside the permafrost. It's not in a big deposit. It's certainly not in a very deep deposit. And really, the only thing that's kept it going is uh, the fact that it's been very cold. Now you find mastodon and other large elephant uh, teeth and bones in uh, some other deposits that you find perhaps further down south in the United States, or we find them here in, uh, in the UK in places like Norfolk as well, where they've been buried. And they are what we call subfossils. And uh, again, they're in a very, very small, very, very shallow kind of deposit. Um, classic example is the West Runton Riverbed uh, in Norfolk. It's uh, only a few miles square and it's only about two or three meters thick. It's a very small deposit. Clearly we're dealing with certainly catastrophic burial, but certainly not on a global scale. Now you can trace these fossil bearing rocks that go all around the world and you can find most of your geological column comes under that. And as far back, like this beautiful little Cambrian uh, or Cambrian uh, trilobite from Australia. Yes, we had to get special government permission to bring this out of Australia. But you can trace it from down in the uh, Cambrian almost all the way up to the Cretaceous. Um, beyond that, you're generally dealing with deposits which are not global, generally dealing with deposits that are much, much smaller. Uh, and then you get other little localized, what we could call modern deposits of fossils. And we'll talk a little bit more about this later. But an example of that 
would be uh, this volcanic ash that I collected while I was in Iceland. And if we hold it right up to the camera, let's see if we can find it. There we go. You might just be able to see if it comes into focus. There we are. You've got a fossil leaf in it. Now, this is something which uh, would have formed in the last, well, couple of years. Uh, and this is a fossil as well. And it's clearly not from a global flood. So we're going to be delving in a little bit deeper into this concept of a global flood, a little bit deeper into what fossils fit where in this sort of biblical story. John's got some great examples about fossils from around the world. We've got examples of fossils from some of the highest mountains in the world as well. But to really kick things off, to get this discussion going, Glenn, we're going to go over to you because uh, you've uh, had a few interesting encounters with people with regards to uh, the idea of a global flood. Yes, uh, we're going to talk about that. Uh, John, didn't you want us to first talk about Joe's trip? At that I, I think it probably would be good to kick that off and get it not just out of the road, but in people's minds, and then deal with the... Uh, I think there's an interesting comment from Biologus on Noah's flood. Yes. We'll come back to you. So have a chat to Joe about you and Tennessee and Tucson and all of that stuff. Sounds good. So, yes, Joe's coming to see me next week. Uh, we're going to meet him in Nashville, and um, I'm going to do my best to bring him back whole. But we are going to start off with a trip down to the largest swamp in North America. Uh, it's one I grew up in, the Atchafalaya Basin. We're going to get him out there with the snakes and alligators. Good news, Joe, there, there won't be a whole lot of snakes if there's a whole lot of alligators. See, this is what I always seem to time this wrong because I go to Australia a few years back, excited to see all of the wildlife, only to find it's the middle of winter and I saw a grand total of two snakes. Um, so uh, <laughs> perhaps I should have got a bit more in the summer. Well, we're going to, um, Lord willing, and we have good weather, we're going to get you out at night. And you will see alligators. Mm -hmm. Now, that's good. Yes, good. And we'll be going over to uh, the Tucson show, which is a great big giant fossil show I first, first visited a few years ago. And uh, we should see some good uh, good uh, evidence and research opportunities there. That's but then I will be in the United States, by the way, for all of our USA uh, viewers, I'll be in the United States until the middle of March. Now, the first yeah. three weeks or so of our ministry trip are pretty much fully booked. But effectively, from the middle to the end of February, to the middle of March, there's about three or four weeks in there. Um, I will be in and we have quite still quite a lot of availability. So if you are in the USA and would like me to come and speak at your church or your school or your groups, then get in touch, particularly if you're in the uh, sort of uh, southern uh, or the south or the southern states up into probably a bit into the Midwest would be doable. Um, but uh, do get in touch because I will be coming over. Let's put a graphic up where you can see yes. all the details. You can uh, email info at creationresearchusa.org uh, and that'll put you through to Glenn Wilson there, or you can email me directly at Joseph Hubbard at creationresearchuk.com, and you can see our website there, creationresearchusa.org as well. So February to March, I will be in the US getting to you've uh, know of some really good sites to go and dig fossils uh, you can get in touch yes. with us and let us know it'd be great to uh, come and visit with you so do get in touch between february and march uh, and you can get in touch to glenn uh, with glenn or myself there so uh, we'll do some filming and all sorts while we're over there as well so it should be uh, it should be a fairly exciting time so good stuff and as you know while you're here we will definitely see evidences of the flood that's what we're going to talk about here today. 
Yes, indeed. I'm going to go to share screen. Let's see. All Better right. Hurry up and there we are. Yeah, we got you. We got right. you. Yes. So, yeah, we're going to talk about a great flood. It's either a great flood or it's a great lie. And we're going to talk about an article. I've got the title here from BioLogos. It says, how should we interpret the Genesis flood account? Um, BioLogos is the largest organization for theistic evolution. And that's where they believe in creation, but they believe God used evolution and I have a good friend when I was with the USDA in Oxford, Mississippi, um, Dr. Greg Davidson was on the faculty. In fact, he was the department head there and good friend of mine and good Christian man. I fully believe good Christian man, but he was a board member of BioLogos and he, he gave me his book. I could show it to you, but one of the things that he says in his book, the very first thing is that when scientific evidence of, or theories appear to conflict with the Bible, how should Christians respond? Should traditional interpretations always be maintained? Are there occasions where it's appropriate to adopt a different interpretation of the scripture? And he laid out three questions that he said should be asked. Does the infallibility of scripture rest on literal interpretation? Does the science conflict with the intended message of the scripture or is the science credible? And so he used the book to basically promote his premise, which I find is the premise of BioLogos, that when science and the Bible disagree, which one do you trust? And consistently in his book, he trusts the science and says we need to reinterpret scripture. Um, this is one of Greg's quotes from a study of scripture alone. It should be apparent that not all the verses in Genesis one and two were intended to be interpreted literally. And the question is who gets to decide what the intention of God's word is. Um, one of the interesting things about Greg, when I gave him his book back, cause I, I didn't finish it. I just said, all right, no, it, it's very clear. He trusts the science and needs to reinterpret the scripture and uh, he challenged me to not just to a debate, but he says, anybody, he says, I love debates. I, you know, debate all the time. He says, I'll debate anybody anywhere. So in 2019, after a fossil digs with John and Joe, I asked them to come visit me in Oxford and we would set up a debate. And so I did. I started making room, had a place arranged and people to come. And I called Greg up and he says, oh, I, I don't debate. I, I don't debate. Um, I just find that debating is not very useful. And that was as soon as I told him that um, he was going to be debating John Mackay and Joe Hubbard. So I found that to be interesting. I love the guy, but um, I don't agree with him. So what was this article uh, by BioLogos? Well, it said, how should we interpret the Genesis flood account? This is a very short article. You see it's only 1,400 words, but 28 times it referred to the Bible as the story. And, you know, Webster defines a, a story. It can be an account of events, but it's mostly a fictional account or based on rumors. And so the first four sentences, it referred to the story, the flood story in the first sentence, the story of Noah in the second sentence, then talk about the story 
And then it says this, until modern times, most Christians assumed the story referred to an actual flood worldwide event that happened in the relatively recent past. And this interpretation, again, interpretation of the flood continues to be a central feature of young earth creationists. Yes, that's because that's what the Bible teaches and says. Well, they lay down three things. Um, they say you have three options when the Bible and the science disagree. The first one is abandon our faith in order to accept the results of science. No, not going to do that. Deny the scientific evidence to maintain our interpretations of the scripture. Or three, reconsider our interpretation of scripture in light of the evidence. And they said option three represents the, the best tradition. Well, what is missing in this? Isn't there a fourth one? How about we reconsider our interpretation of the science? You see, we agree on the observations. We disagree on the interpretation of those observations. So why in there a fourth one? Reconsider our interpretations of the observations in light of the truth of God's words. That's not an option to biologos. So Sam, I think, pulled out this quote and made this nice. This came from the article. They say this, the scientific and historical evidence is now clear. There was never, there has never been a global flood that covered the entire earth, nor do all modern animals and humans descend from the passengers of a single vessel. It's very clear where they lie. And that is, there was never a global flood and there was never an ark. And here's their evidence that they presented to support that statement. So today we're going to talk about the evidence that we present to show there was a global flood. And start off with, on average around the world, there's one and a half mile deep of sedimentary rock. And one thing we all agree on, whether you're a secularist, an evolutionist, or a creationist, is that there are billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water that cover the entire earth. What does that sound like? That sounds like a global flood to me. So we find these even on the highest mountains. I'm going to just briefly talk about this picture of one from uh, Peru, 15,000 feet. Um, there was an article about fossils on the highest mountains in the Himalayas, Mount Everest. The problem is the person put in this fossil, which is a picture of a fossil from the Green River Formation, <laughs> not from the Mount Everest. But Mount Everest, in the uh, article, it says that it's Mount Everest is 29,000 feet high. And these mountains are hundreds of miles, I suspect thousands of miles, from the closest sea. And they asked, so how is it possible that marine fossils have been found in multiple locations in the Himalayas? Well, that's a very good question. So um, this was interesting to me. A person found that on Facebook, someone in Australia, can't imagine what influence they might have had in Australia. Someone in Australia claimed that scientists studying Mount Everest had found fossilized fish skeletons, which are proof the Earth previously experienced a great flood. And what this article did was they wanted to do a fact check to see if it was true. And in the article, this is some of their quotes. They said, it is true that remnants of ancient sea life have been found fossilized on Everest, the world's highest point above sea level. 
They also state it is true. The fossil recorded around Mount Everest or formed under the ocean. Okay. And then they say that these phosphorus uh, sedimentary rocks that formed part of northern India were thrust upwards by colossal tectonic forces. Okay. And that we agree on. And then they concluded that this article was false. So the article claimed that there were fossils of ocean animals up on Mount Everest. And they said, yes, they are. And we claimed that they were in sedimentary rock. And they said, yes, they are. And we claimed that they were under the ocean at one point. And they said, yes, they are. And then they concluded that the article was false. Um, kind of interesting. So what does the Bible say? Like, like I said, we agree on the observations. We disagree on the interpretation. Psalm says, you, talking about the king of the flood, God, you covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters were standing above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they hurried away. The mountains rose. The valley sank down to the place which you established for them. See, we agree on these observations that there are fossils on the highest mountains and that the flood covered all the earth and it covered over all the mountains. And we also agree that the mountains rose and the valleys sank. So with that, I am going to turn it back over. You can take me off at this point and turn it back over to Joe. Try, me, try me. Okay, now, some of the things that were raised there... Uh, are really central and crucial. I love the unintended pun that you can see where BioLogos lies on this issue. I love the word lies because it's got many meanings, including not telling the truth. Now, I, I always warn people who are saying, oh, Genesis is a story, or, uh, you know, it doesn't matter if you believe this or not, and Diane will deal with some of these things later on because she's the girl who found the uh, BioLogos quote, and we've used it on our website a few times. But you see, here's what I'm finding interesting. How really do you want to stand before a God whose son is the way, the truth, and the life, who came to this earth, who never tells a lie, who said to us, if it was not so, I would have told you. That's Jesus, by the way. And he went around telling people as it was in the days of Noah. So it will be in the day when I return. Now, with all the things that are happening in Israel and all of that, there's an awful lot of discussion on the return of Christ and what, what, what session we're up to in history. But question, you people from Biologos who would claim to be Christians, you claim to believe in the one who told the truth, and you've just called him a liar. Now, on Judgment mm -hmm. Day, it says in the Bible that you'll be held accountable for every word that comes out of your own mouth. That just about frightened the daylights out of me when I first became a Christian. I thought, whoops, John McKay needs to watch what he says because there's a day coming when you will be tasked, okay, Mr. Biologos, you wrote that it was not true. You wrote there never was a worldwide flood. You wrote that the animals are not descended from a boatload uh, of creatures that God sent to Noah. You wrote that this is just a story. And uh, yet I just picked up my Bible and had a quick check. Genesis chapter 6, Genesis chapter 7 includes quite a few times. And the Lord said, uh, the Lord being the creator God of Genesis chapter 1, who the New Testament says is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
all things are made by him. And Genesis chapter 6 and 7, three or four times says, the Lord said to Noah. And it commends Noah for doing everything the Lord said for him to do. Man, I wish I had that testimony on my tombstone. So here's the issue. If you're going to be a Christian, do you actually believe what God said? Because if you're believing in modern geology, which I'll give you a clue, that's what the substitute belief is. And I say substitute belief because having been trained in geology, having lectured in geology, having traveled all over the world digging up fossils from Alaska uh, down to the edge of Antarctica, basically, um, I've discovered one thing over the years. The founding father of modern interpretations of geology is on record. Uh, remember Charles Lyell? He visited Australia. We've even got lakes named after him. His friend Charles Darwin came here as well. And Darwin also fell victim to Lyell's philosophy, his interpretation style in which Lyell said, not only that the present is the key to the past, dig deeper. He said that because he could, quote, unquote, my aim is to get rid of Moses from science. And Biologus has fallen for it. Bless their little hearts, and we hope they actually wander back to the truth that they could do that now by picking up their Bible and saying, God's word is true from the very beginning. And that's what they're not doing. They're saying man's word, Charles Lyell, is, is true from the beginning. And that's where the clash will be. So as one famous American speaker, I, I listened to some of the YouTube's uh, clips on some of the um, Bible teachers all around the globe at nighttime before my wife and I go to sleep. And I heard one of the famous American preachers, and he got up and said, if you're going to deal with the Bible, you're going to deal with Christianity, then first you have to admit there is a creator, sovereign God. And next you have to admit that man fell and we are sinners. Unless you have to admit that there really was a judgment by a God who owned the world and had every right to judge the world. Now, I'll challenge you at this point, if you're listening and you're struggling with this issue, you need to listen. If you can't come to grips with a creator God who owns the world, therefore he has the right to judge it. Not just to judge Adam and Eve for sin, but to judge all of mankind by the days of Noah and to even judge the world that was afflicted by sin. You do realize that it says the animals had become violent? Yes, violence is not right in God's eyes. And later he gives the law in which he tells people they have to punish the violent animals. Yeah, I mean, they're not behaving naturally. They're afflicted by the problem of sin. And if they dare to damage God's image in man, then they must pay the price. They need to be judged by you and me because they were put under our dominion. Wow, what a package we're unwrapping tonight. Now, when you have a look at this, let me give you a couple of clues about the way to see things, because I've learned the hard way. Growing up in a non-Christian family, growing up in a state education system, albeit a lot more Christian then than it is now, I learned that the world was millions of years old. We didn't learn evolution in those days, but we did learn the rocks at the bottom had the oldest fossils. The rocks at the top had the youngest fossils. And I never once challenged that. Not even by the time I got to final year university. I could begin to see what was wrong with it because it didn't work. When you went out in the field, it didn't matter what order you thought the rocks were in. All that mattered was where you mapped your geology deposit, 
where you mapped your gold, where you listed the, the fossil footprints as being found. That's what real geology was. And when I taught geology, I still remember the horrified look on some of my colleagues' faces when I said, what do you think would happen if I taught this geological course to coal mining uh, folks without reference to evolution of millions of years? And they said, you can't do that. I said, it's too late. I already have. And they've all done exceedingly well. Geology deals with the real world. Charles Lyell was out to get rid of the real God who actually really did send a real flood across the whole world or you do the biologos thing. None of that's true. And therefore, they have a Jesus who doesn't tell the truth. So a challenge to you before we move on to the basis of geology and the fossils is what is your attitude to scripture? And if you take the biologos syndrome, that's what we'll call it at the moment, are you willing to stand before God on judgment day and say, excuse me, God, I disagree with you because that's what you're doing. And God's going to say, why did you call me a liar? I always tell the truth. And you knew, do realize what the judgment penalties are there. The Bible is emphatic. There are no liars. There are no thieves. There are no fraudulent uh, people, etc. There are no, it's any of those lists of moral things that go, go way downhill from there. There are none of them to be found in the kingdom of God on the new heavens and the new earth. All right, back to fossils. You see my uh, fossil leaf there? You see my fossil leaves here. Now, this one I found in the USA in Washington State, way up uh, in the northern middle section of Washington State, and it's a leaf in volcanic ash. It's beautifully preserved. You can see the leaf structure, but this leaf was picked up in a volcanic eruption, torn off the trees, carried along, but the ash was cool enough so it didn't burn the leaf, and then it was dumped and buried in the same volcanic eruption in cool ash beautifully preserved the bugs sorry the bugs and bacteria all disappeared in the hot ash before it even got to the leaf so it was an absolutely sterile environment but the one thing i know having traveled from the bottom part of vancouver all the way down to california and beyond that volcanic bed does not cover the globe it does not even cover the, the whole of Washington State. In fact, you can map these beds and we'll show you one specifically later on that's got petrified wood in it that's fairly recent. But you see, you can actually say, if Noah's flood is real, what are we looking for? Not just rapidly formed fossils, not just well-preserved fossils, but you have to ask the question about scale. Now, to answer that question, you have to take the opposite position to Charles Lyell, the opposite position to my professors, the opposite position to the textbooks. You have to say, what has God said about Noah's flood? On the other hand, this one here, which is, uh, I mean, look at those beautiful colours. Let's get to the right side. There we are. Look at those leaves, Glossopterus, um, from the Permian beds at Dunedoo. Now, for those of you who are a little concerned, we've got on the edge of filth here. That's not the Australian nickname for the outhouse in the backyard where you go down and you done your stuff. You dropped your load that you needed to get rid of. Uh, this is an Aboriginal word that seems to refer to swans that lived on the lagoon nearby. But this lovely stuff here is sort of stained with iron oxide 
and burnt like brick. So it's come from a Permian bed that's been, well, re-solidified. Uh, you see sediment to start with, clay, mud stuff, lots of leaves, ripped off plants and dumped. But if you ask, how big is this bed? Well, I did a quick check because it's quite a while since I've looked at the size of Permian beds. I mostly work on the Jurassic ones. And I can take you to North Queensland. We can come all the way down the coast. We can go all through the coal fields of New South Wales. We can go across to Western Australia and start all over again. These are humongous in size. These are not just little beds. Uh, Australia, by the way, is way bigger than Washington State. Australia, by the way, is as big as the continental USA. So these are enormous beds and they're full of fossils like these. So when you look at these leaves, not only can you think of Dunedoo in Australia, which is in northern New South Wales, you can actually get them in many rock shops, usually pay a premium for the ones that are good, and they include flowers, they include fruit, they include the leaves, all torn apart, so definitely catastrophic, rapid. On the scale, no, they're not all burnt like that because the rest of the bed hasn't been hit by lightning or the fire hasn't got into the coal beds in the Permian and cooked it from underneath which it has in so many places in northern Queensland as well. What you find is these are mega beds. In fact, I have to laugh. You see, it's people like Charles Lyell and some of the others who were shipped off by the king to help the uh, Russians. The Tsar of Russia needed help with his classification. So he gave us the word Permian because he went to study the rocks near a town called Perm. The, the name of the rocks have nothing to do with millions of years, nothing to do with the theory of evolution. And that's why I could say to my fellow lecturers, what do you think will happen if I leave evolution a millions of years out? And they were horrified. No, they weren't there in the start. They're place names. They're actual real locations, Permian from Perm. But you see, this, this brings up the dilemma. When you have a look at the whole philosophy, the way we see things, not only does Charles Lyell influence and you Christians need to listen carefully. Those who claim to be Christians, have you got rid of Charles Lyell out of your brain? Oh, you never get a lecture in, in, in geology on Charles Lyell's anti-Christian attitudes. You never hear how he promoted anti-Christian thought everywhere he went. You don't hear that because he's regarded as a neutral objective scientist. But he hated Christ and he hated the ones who stood for Christ. So you need to make a choice. Uh, when I look at the Bible, it does not say that Moses was a liar. So let's go and check what the Lord used, used Moses to say. And in many cases, interrupted Moses by saying, and the Lord said, and Noah did everything the Lord commanded him. And the Lord said, the words that Joe read, there's going to be a flood. It's going to cover all the highest hills under the whole of the heavens. And there's no way to read that except the global flood. Have you got that straight yet? Because, you see, you need one other thing. Charles Lyell actually built on the work of a Christian man, a man by the name of Nicholas Steno. Now, we've talked, we've had whole programs on our strata machine. I'd encourage you, go to our website, look up the strata machine experiments and see that I, I really can be annoying because I keep telling people he got it wrong. And yet every one of us builds our geology on 
the bottom layer got there first, the next layer, the next layer. And then the next step Charles Lael takes, well, the fossils at the bottom of Steno says they got there first, they must be older. And then Darwin, if they must, must be older, then how did they change as they went up? Millions of years of evolution, and all of a sudden your Bible is out as not just a story, but a fairy story and a fairy bad one as that. And it must be gotten rid of. You see, Steno had his four principles. And the bottom one is the principle of superposition. Now, can I encourage you? That's not the real history of geology. Um, you, you see, there was a man who lived, he was born a few years before Steno, John Ray is his name, and he and Linnaeus developed the botanical classification system. You know, species, genus, etc. Now, Linnaeus is way more famous than him for actually being part of that, but there's no doubt about it. Our friend John Ray uh, really was outstanding in the botanical field and even in the geological thinking field. You see, in those days, they weren't specialists like we have to be. There's so much knowledge today to learn. Uh, but he could have figured out what tree this came from and put it in a classification spot. And that's what he and Linnaeus struggled with. But he made one comment and he said, if Steno is right, Bottom layer got there first, principles of superposition, etc. If Steno is right, if the bottom layer is oldest, then Steno has devised a system which makes the world too old for the Bible to be true. You realize you didn't hear that in Geology 101? You didn't hear it in Geology PhD lessons. I didn't hear it any time I was at Queensland University doing geology. I didn't hear it out in the field. I actually discovered that the geologic column doesn't work no matter how hard you try. I mean, go to a, 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 a strata conference and you will find that the argument is, where does this start? Where does it stop? Does it really go sideways? Does it, whatever. And it is not as clear in, in real world as you get it from the textbooks from the teachers who believe Steno. But if you believe Steno, even if you're a Christian, and Biologus would claim to believe Steno as well as Giles Lyell, as well as, you know, the Bible? No, they don't believe the Bible. They're calling God a liar because God said the flood is true. Steno said the bottom layer got there first. Now, when you have a look at rocks, look at these beautiful rocks here, layer upon layer. So when you have a look, we find fossils in these. In a little while, I'm going to come back and we're going to show you some slides of uh, how these things can contain fossils that do not belong to Noah's flood. Just lock, knock my light over to give me a minute there to, to put back. So we've had a look at these fossils, which are local, and there's nowhere in the world, even though they're at the tops of the mountains, there's nowhere in the world they have anything to do with Noah's flood except the closing down of what possibly could have been the, 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 the fountains of the deep. Now, Joe told you you'd find a lot more in the Bible about Noah's flood. It includes things like the fountains of the deep, the water came from below. It mentions them at the end so that the fountains of the deep uh, run. You, you actually actually look at um, Noah's flood and it's got water coming up, water covering over, water running off. You've got at least three distinct phases. And how does water behave? Well, I have to tell you this, water always behaves as if it's in layers because it actually is. And the strata like this, where did I find these? Well, I actually got these out of the coal fields. Look at that, black, white, black, white, black, white, uh, and the black has got a lot of carbon in it, and the coal sits in between those layers, sometimes this thick, 
sometimes yay thick in our Queensland coal fields. Now, um, Diane, would you like to just talk for a moment on the BioLogos quote and, and their system of thinking? Because I, I'll get my slides ready and my other fossils and I'll come back to dealing with how you would recognise whether a fossil is from Noah's flood or after Noah's flood. Yes, if we come back to us, uh, I've been to Dunedoo. It is a real place. Uh, it's in <laughs> central western New South Wales. Yes. Uh, a few years ago, we got a question on the Ask John Mackay site, which you can look up. And uh, it was uh, the result of someone looking at the Biologos site and seeing an article about how the um, the story of Noah's flood was just a theological story. Now, since then, they've written lots of other things. And that quote that we put up at the beginning there uh, came from a 2023 article. But uh, our question goes back to 2016. So they have been talking about this for a while. But the idea that the local of the local flood is one that comes and goes quite regularly. So it's uh, it's not a new idea. It's been around for quite a while. And it is used to challenge people who believe in the uh, worldwide flood and, and who believe that uh, God judged the entire world, uh, not just a local region. Now, I do have some slides, but I'm going to have to skip over them. Uh, we sent out a newsletter this week, so I don't know whether you want to um, just do a bit of a diversion to remind people about our email newsletters. They have started up for 2024. Um, so if we could just uh, briefly go to that. And uh, yes, there we are. Um, and we have some interesting things for you. They're a mixture of news and uh, plus uh, our watching brief on the general scientific news. So you'll read some interesting things about uh, our experiments that we're doing up at Jurassic Arc. Um, fascinating things there about how to make your own oil, coal and gas. Uh, Joseph has been out in the wilds of Wales and has found some interesting fossils and Craig has been out in the wilds of Tasmania and found some interesting fossils there as well. And we have an interesting report about uh, crocodile skin or well, maybe not crocodile skin, but certainly the oldest reptile skin, because that is a claim that was made uh, by some scientists who were uh, digging up fossils in a cave system that had been infilled uh, in Oklahoma. And it was dated as 289 to, uh, I've got 289 again there, it should be 286. Um, and uh, they found a little fragment of skin, which when they looked at it was very, very clearly reptile skin. And because of the uh, dating of these rock layers, they said, oh, look, we found the oldest reptile skin. And interesting, the surface of it just looked like living crocodile skin, but it also had some features of other reptile skin, uh, such as snakes and lizards. Um, now, this is a serious issue because the evolutionists will tell you that uh, reptiles evolved evolved from amphibians, but amphibians and reptiles have completely different skin. And somehow they managed to jump over that transition without going into the details, but uh, you can read about that in our newsletter, but basically 
amphibians are designed to have a semi-aquatic life, so they have uh, skin that is moist and helps them breathe. Reptiles are land-dwelling animals that reproduce on land and they have skin that it is, is designed to live in a dry environment. Uh, and uh, if this really was the oldest reptile skin, well, all it shows is that reptile skin has been reptile skin for as long as you want to believe it's been around on the earth. Uh, our next story was about owls. Uh, we always like to see if we can find interesting stories about design because there's just wonderful design out there in the real world. And one of the wonderful things about owls is that they are able to fly without making any noise. Um, and some scientists and engineers decided, well, you know, how do they actually do this? Now, previous studies had shown that um, they have these sort of fringes on the trailing edge of their wings. So some scientists and engineers decided, well, let's work out how this actually works. What is it that uh, suppresses the noise? And in order to do that, they had to, to create a three-dimensional model. Now, that's in quotes there because it's from an article from a website called Interesting Engineering. Now, the original report in the scientific journal did not use the word created. In fact, you, you, you'll get banned if you use that word or the word creator. But uh, engineers work out in the real world and they know very well that three-dimensional models and machinery and all sorts of other things like that have to be created by intelligent people who have creative design skills. And, uh, and they discovered how the, uh, these trailing edge um, fringes actually work. And therefore, we could use the same structure to design propellers, drones and wind turbines. And if they manage to do that, it will only be because some clever engineers actually built something that was similar to the owl wings. So who was smarter in the first place? And then we have a story which is related to what we're talking about tonight because we're talking about real uh, worldwide things. Now, this was just a study of uh, part of Australia or the continental study, uh, shelf just off northwestern Australia where um, they're doing very detailed uh, studies these days of the ocean floors and they found the remnants of what was a complex terrestrial landscape right, with uh, rivers and freshwater lakes and an extensive archipelago and the uh, people who did this uh, estimated, well, you know, this sort of um, landscape could have supported up to half a million or 500,000 people. Now, that's most unlikely that that many people lived uh, in this area just northwest of Australia. And the population of Australia now is only a bit over 26 million. Um, and when uh, Europeans first uh, came to Australia, there were people living here, but there was probably only 500,000 people in the entire continent. But it does remind us that all over the world, there is uh, evidence that people have lived on what are now buried or undersea remains, so in on the continental shelves. And this is an issue for people who uh, believe in the worldwide flood of Noah where only the animals and the people on the ark were saved. How did we get people all over the world now? How did we get animals all over the world? 
Well, if the sea levels were lower in the past, and the secular scientists don't disagree with that, in fact, they insist that the evidence is there that during the ice age, the sea levels were lower, significantly lower, and what are isolated islands now were either joined up or a lot closer to one another. So biologists scoff at the idea that uh, the current population of people and animals in the world are descended from those that got off a boat somewhere near the Middle East and uh, managed to migrate all over the world. Well, there's plenty of evidence that that happened and the evidence that it was facilitated by much bigger forces that are happening now with the current ch uh, climate change debate. Uh, it's all there. And so the more that we look under the sea, the more that we look on the land, the more evidence we find that the Bible is true. It can be trusted. And therefore, it is absurd for people who claim to be Christians and claim to uh, believe in the scriptures to write things like this, that the scientific and historical evidence is clear that there never was a global flood. The scientific evidence and the historical evidence is very clear uh, and you've seen some of it tonight and there's plenty more on our media and in our presentations and uh, this was the question we got back in 2016. Biologos stated that Noah's flood was only a local event and is only a theological story. Now that's important because unless only reality has authority so if something was not really true, where it is described in a historical narrative in the Bible, if it wasn't really true, then it has no uh, theological significance and no theological authority. Uh, anyway, we were asked, what do you think? And we put together a, a detailed answer, which you can read, but there are five serious issues that need to be addressed. Now, we could go on and on and on about all of them. Uh, we'll probably come back to this topic a few times during the year. But these are the issues that we really do need to confront. What does Genesis state? The best way to uh, answer that one is actually read those three chapters that Joseph read uh, excerpts from and uh, see what the Bible clearly says. It's not obscure. It's not uh, um difficult to read. It is a clear, detailed, sensible narrative. Now then ask yourself, well, if it wasn't a worldwide flood, it had to be a local flood. Does it make sense? And in fact, it doesn't. And we do explain in the answer to that question how it's very illogical if the local flood makes sense. It just becomes a sort of fanciful, silly story. God doesn't tell silly stories. He tells the truth. We need to take our authority from Jesus and the apostles. If you uh, claim to be a Christian, a follower of Christ, then you have to follow his teachings. His word is true. And then we have evidence from cultures all over the world. And if you've been to uh, some of our museums, particularly the one in Tasmania, and we have a new display coming up at the uh, one in Brisbane, um, there is evidence from cultures all over the world that there was a worldwide flood. Now, sometimes the story has become embellished and 
bits of it have been left out and other bits have been added. That's what happens when people walk away from the truth of God's word. But the foundation there that there was a worldwide flood set in judgment is just there all over the world. And we also have the evidence from the earth. And that's what we've been showing you in this program here. You can actually go out and see the evidence in the rock layers, in the fossils, in the landforms. It's all there in the real world. God is the God of the real world. And if we can just come back for, uh, to us, um, I have one of those fossils that uh, supposedly or definitely did come from the uh, highest mountains, highest mountain in the world, uh, of course, being Mount Everest. And if we can just come back to us, um, Yes, here we are. Here we have uh, a lovely lump of rock. And if we open it up, you can see here, if, uh, if I can get my camera to get a decent look. Oh, look, look at that. Isn't that beautiful? Right, that's an, an ammonite, a deep sea creature, and that was found on Mount Everest. So the evidence is there out in the real world. We don't have to fear what the secular skeptics say about us. Uh, it's all there. God is the God of the real world. And uh, I'm sure that uh, John and Joseph and Glenn have some other interesting things mm -hmm. to, to add to that. But uh, Sam, do we have any questions or uh, thank yous? Oh, we have questions by the <laughs> arc load tonight right, we're um, going to have to come back to this yeah, topic aren't we yeah um we may have to do a quick fire round later if i'm perfectly honest but we'll have to see how things go uh we've got to do thanks first so we've got uh doki doki coming in with uh 99 us center who's smiling face with sunglasses don't have any sunglasses but you have to make do with goggles like that there you go um and we've got uh douglas boffy uh coming in with three british buckaroos of hippo character in tactical gear doing tactical flanking maneuver hand gestures i'm thinking that's like go 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 I, I don't know um these these stickers elude me sometimes they really do um i've got uh 149 us buckaroos a hot dog with ketchup don't have a hot dog unfortunately doki so you have to make do with an imaginary one um uh, <laughs> we've got uh, i thought you were uh, supposed to have mustard on hot dogs <laughs> yes uh, i know well, you can have yeah. both and or none or either or whatever yeah. floats your boat. It's a, it's a free country. We're, we're, yes, we're still grateful. Thank you very much. Yes. Uh, we've got George Bond coming in with 20 Aussie buckaroos. Congrats on 5,100 subscribers. And here's to uh, 10,000 soon. Keep an eye on uh, creation research on the SFT channel. End of Feb with Q&A audience participation. Yes, indeed. At the end of February, we will be doing a... a with John and myself uh, over on the Standing for Truth channel. So it's an opportunity for all the critics to come and have a little bit of a debate with us. That's how I'm looking forward to. It should be good. Yes, looking forward to that one. And we've got a final one here from Doki Doki for five US buckaroos. Shiba Dog saying, good job while raising his thumbs up. There we go. I'll just check the live uh, comments. To Oh, see, you see, I knew Doki Doki slipped in another one. He slipped in another one. 149 US buckaroos, a yellow dog. 
Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you very much. God bless you all. It's very, very much appreciated. It helps keep the wheels turning. Uh, right. Uh, let's do some questions. Um, da -da 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 -da. Well, we've already, we've already answered this. We might as well address it again. Uh, Doki asked, when, where is Joe planning to go on the next US trip? I will be coming to the US on Tuesday. This coming Tuesday, very, very soon. Um, now, the first two and a half weeks are pretty much full. I'll be traveling with Glenn and we'll be going over to Tucson and back through uh, Dallas and uh, and all sorts. Um, but from the sort of uh, second half to the end of February into the second half of March, uh, we have got availability. So if you would like me to come and visit you with Glenn as well, uh, then get in touch with us now. You can email us at info at creationresearchusa.org, uh, which you can see on the screen there. That'll get you through to Glenn, or you can email me personally, Joseph Hubbard at creationresearchuk.com, and that'll come through to me. And uh, anywhere really uh, in the uh, in the USA, particularly the South, the sort of the Midwest uh, would be ideal. But if you want me to come and visit your church, uh, debate, field trip, if you know good fossils on your land and you want us to come and dig some things up, then get, get in touch with us. Uh, and it'd be great to, uh, to hear from you, be able to come and visit you. So get in touch with us uh, if you'd like Creation Research to visit your church in the next couple of months. All right, uh, let's do the next question. This one comes in from Douglas Boffy. Uh, where would the team put the pre-flood slash flood and the flood slash post-flood boundaries in the geologic column? We did a, a two-part stream. Well, you you and John did um, with Stranding for Truth on this topic, didn't you? Mm, we did. Um, and if you want a, nut, a, a nutshell answer, because it was like about a six-hour program that we did with Stranding for Truth. <laughs> but if you want a nutshell answer, and then I'll I'll throw it over to uh, to John. Um, um, the the simple answer is we don't uh, put a, a, a line between the pre-flood and the flood and the post-flood and the flood in the geological column. Because if you look at the history of the geological column, it starts with Steno with the idea that the bottom layer got there first, the top layer got their youngest. John dealt with that earlier. And if you read your history, uh, or read your rocks as a history of life on Earth, uh, then you are reading it as a history over millions of years. And the reality is the geological column uh, is simply a dead end. It doesn't actually line up anywhere. So if you try and take the geological column and put it into flood geology terms, many of us would love to get a big red pen and go, there's the flood deposits, there's the pre-flood deposits. Uh, and it really doesn't always work. Sometimes works, depending on where you are in, in the world. But as soon as you start matching it up to other things in the world, it doesn't work at all. And uh, I've had the privilege, and John even more so, of being able to travel the world and see lots of these and you find that there are gaps everywhere it just doesn't work to get a big red pen and say there's where the flood is so you do kind of have to take it on a case-by-case -case basis if you want it as a generalization uh, you'll do well to look somewhere at the end of the cretaceous if you're looking for the flood post-flood boundary there are differing opinions depending on which part of the world that you're in uh, and that really is the key you can't just get a geological column and say this is our orthodox geology, which we're going to take as orthodox geology and try and fit it into the scriptures. It really doesn't work that way. John? Um, yeah, I totally agree with that, Joe. Um, people don't realize how insufficient the geologic column is. And again, I would recommend one of the geologists that I have, a well, he's passed now, but I had a great deal of admiration to him, Derek Ager, who actually did what most geologists don't. Most geologists work for a company, dig up coal, dig up oil, and retire. 
as head of the company or head of research or whatever. Most of them don't do what Derek Ager did. I'm going around the planet to actually check what's there. Read his book on catastrophism and the new catastrophism where he basically says this geologic column bit doesn't work. In fact, didn't you have one geologist on a field trip on the East Coast uh, tell you exactly that when you questioned him about the Ice Age and things like that? Yeah, effectively, there is. Uh, it's, it's something like 60-odd million years missing between the two lands in the Norfolk coast and they're basically touching each other. In fact, sometimes the younger one is underneath the supposedly older one. <laughs> it's a big mess. But um, when I asked him about, well, how do we know what happened then uh, between 60 million years ago and today, uh, or when the, the next lot of deposits were formed, um, the answer was effectively, well, you've got to think of the geological column a bit like a book that's had all of its pages ripped out and spread out all over the world, and there are no page numbers. And your job is to go around the world and to try and piece it back together the best you can. And I said, well, I don't think I could do that, do that very well. Um, yeah, it doesn't really line up and make much sense. And it really is true. You have to fit different pieces together from all over. And you tend to just pick one particular uh, aspect to try and match up. Uh, they're often called index fossils, right, when you try and sort of match them up. But you'll find there are so many anomalies apart from the index fossils. It just simply doesn't work if you can take a step back and look at the big picture. I'll make one last comment here. You have to come to grips with the way you see things. If you follow Charles Lyell and you don't really think about him, then you'll follow Charles Darwin because Charles Darwin was his victim. And you'll follow the teacher who actually starts at the bottom like Steno did. He started with a belief in creation and in Noah's flood, but he came up with a wrong worldview that actually opened the door to evolution. You will just keep reinventing the errors if you take the geologic column as a fact. Right. So read Derek Age, a new catastrophism. Get out there and see the real world. Sam, can I make a recommendation? There's a question here from somebody in the Philippines. Having been to the Philippines, I, think I was I just about to put that up, John. Yeah. Briefly answer that and then move on to my slides for the next section. All right, then. Well, this one comes from, from uh, Edward Apina over in the Philippines. Thank you very much for joining us, Edward. Uh, I love to collect fossils and start to have my creation museum here in the Philippines. Where can I possibly start? I mean, would it be possible that these fossils can be shipped to the Philippines? Uh, well, the answer to the last part is the answer. Uh, there are quite a few fossils that you can ship to the Philippines and uh, some that like remember we said Joe had we had to get a special permit to export a, a, a trilobite from um, Tasmania. Uh, sorry, not Tasmania, from uh, King, King, uh, Kangaroo Island. Some we can't, but there, you'd be able to actually find uh, fossil shops that would sell you quite a lot of things or sell you casts of the same. Now, having been to the Philippines, you want to know where to start? Well, when they dig drains around Manila, you know, septic channels or things like that, get in there before they lay the pipes because you've got lots of volcanic fossils all around that area there. I know I jumped in one and, and got some really great fossils. And when I was asked in Australia, did you get this off the surface? I said, no, it was way down which was the truth. I didn't tell it was from a pre-septic channel or anything like that. But in reality, they were great fossil leaves and, and twigs and all of that because the, the islands there are technically volcanic islands. You'll also find there are plenty of coal mines that have abundant fossils. 
because the coal in the Philippines, in, in, in many areas, because I've lectured in coal, I know quite a few of our coal mines were found for the same reason. Not people looking for coal, but looking for gold, right? Gold is so often associated with coal, it's not funny. Uh, perhaps it's because an old gold miner told me, if you want to find gold, look for carbon in the rocks. And when I tried to find out what the connection is, nobody actually knows except it's real and it's there. And in the Filipino mines, the coal mines, I came across a poor coal miner and, and, and I said, what's the problem? Christian guy. He said, government rules the problem. I said, what do you mean government rules? He said, I can either have a coal mine or a gold mine because my coal has got gold in it. But I'm only licensed for a coal mine at the moment. I can't mine both. And I thought, you poor bloke. But you're not asking about gold, so ignore the gold. You want the fossils. The fossils are in the coal or under the coal, and much of your coal is volcanic coal. Now, what I mean by that, northern New Zealand has got the same thing. Volcanic eruptions destroy forests in the same way floods do, and air is laminated just like water is, and they end up in layers dumped on one another and then suddenly buried. And it's not just a single leaf like this one. Right, you'll have tons of leaves and tons of bark and tons of wood, and they'll simply basically be converted into carbon-rich compounds, which are coal. But a word of warning, most of your coal mining when I was there wouldn't pass any of our safety tests at all uh, for, for daring to go into it. Most are really small scale. So ask the miners if they can actually get you some. That's where I'd suggest you start. Find out, I don't know what island you're on, I don't think you mentioned that, that the Philippines is full of fossil stuff like that. And if you uh, contact even Joe in England, he's got much more access to fossil shops that will be likely to send you stuff in the Philippines than I have. Okay, Sam, can we have my uh, next lot of uh, slides up, please, mate? Certainly can. Wait till I find there you my, go. Uh, all right, that's good. Okay, when a fossil's not from Noah's flood, why isn't it moving, Sam? I think you need to go to your own slides, John. This is just up on our screen. So you need okay. to go down to PowerPoint and bring it up. We'd already done that. You need to go on PowerPoint. And computer okay. Let's take you to the Victorian gold fields. Now, remember I said there was an old gold miner down there who told me, look for carbon, black stuff in the rocks, fossils in the rocks. And uh, we've even got a famous example of a fossil that's coated in gold. Great connection. No one's quite sure why. Now, what are you looking at? Well, you've got a top view of a mine dump because after miners started to crush the rocks from the quartz uh, veins, not, not scavenge for it in, in the streams, um, they would crush the quartz rocks and they would end up getting rid of the, the dusty powder, etc., that had been treated with arsenic and you name it, all these dangerous things to actually get the gold out. Mercury remnants and that are all full through here. Okay, now you see where the red arrow just popped up? That's where the old bund or the old wall was and that this was in a, a little valley and they were aiming just to get rid of their overflow uh, waste uh, dump and uh, put a, a, their own little wall in and there was a, a, a sullage pit right past that where the excess water would leak. Now, there is all that's left of the bund wall. See that hardened block in the middle? See my colleague's feet on the left-hand side? Um, Australians look good in their boots, don't they? Particularly if they wear white clothes on a field trip. I can't say I didn't warn him. Uh, but in reality, there's yours truly. 
not in anything really clean and dressed up with a good Aussie hat and inside the bun wall back towards where the mine dump was pumped from. Yes, what they do would be crush the, the gold, crush the ore, crush the rocks, and then the remnants that they didn't want, gold could be harvested either because it was too heavy or it would dissolve in the, the mercury or things like that, and they would pump the residue after it had been further treated out into this walled enclosure. Okay, good to have colleagues. By the way, this is a naturally formed uh, from rain and storm since the bun wall broke down, and so it's all eroded out, and uh, you can get inside what was behind it. Another one of my colleagues. By the way, thank you, colleagues, because I love saying, dig here, dig that, get that out for me. Really useful. Age does come with a few benefits. Uh, can you see what he's doing there? Excavating one of the walls? And look at the layers. Now, here's what we know about this process. The factory where they crushed all this was up the other end on the left-hand side of the screen, and they would pump the stuff into it. And it's quite a decent-sized bund, as you saw from the, the um, uh, global map view from satellites, and yet it all ended up in lovely, neat layers. And that will become very significant. Yes, we were getting specimens for our museum, so we're extracting them, we are trimming them, we are picking them up, and uh, I'll guarantee you don't have any other museums on the planet where they've actually dug the layers out intact. All right, so we put it in our nice carry bag, a plastic one. Uh, we've coated it already with transparent glue to hold the outside together. And because it's been underneath the ground, it's moist. So we have to keep the moisture intact or it'll simply just go to powder like the edge of the wall has. Actually, what's interesting is there are street marks and areas that look like, well, something scoured across the top. And quite surprisingly, no, and actually it's not surprising, these scratch marks, streak marks, there's where I found the specimen on the right-hand side. There's where it was pumped in on the left-hand side. So don't be surprised. There's evidence of the water flow on each bed. And the water flow is over the top and through the layers. Hmm. Well, there's where we took that first specimen from. Let's have a look at we do, doing some further work because here's where we're going for our second test. Uh, remember, we're digging ones in an artificial environment, and yet the water's been pumped in from the arrow on the left, and by the time it's got down to the bund wall where you can see some bits remaining with big cavities in it, um, it's actually in nice, neat layers. Well, here we are at the top, just where the, the stuff was flowing in. And I'm sure even you can see the layers in this glue-coated uh, block with a hammer on top. You see, when we get close up, yes, those geological hammers make sure they're tough because we still found some nice little quartz bits in here. And that's what the guys with their mine, uh, you know, the metal detectors are looking for, bits that made it through the system that actually still have gold in it. And look, layer upon layer upon layer. At the front end, where we started, there was layer upon layer up against the bun wall. At the other end where it was pumped in, it was already in layers before it got 10 feet from the pipe. Quite amazing. But actually, what Stina would say, the ones at the bottom got there first and the ones at the top got there last. But in reality, this thing filled up sideways and it's always ignored in any of your geology courses. So 
in 2024, um, because I was down there doing number one in 2023, and the other guys started doing number two in 2024, and you say, why am I bothering telling you that? Well, you can see where the water's coming. You can see the V-shaped deposit, certainly just like a delta, etc. And it's behaving like the first man saw the deltas in Venice behave. It's not forming layers one on top of each other. It's forming the layers sideways from left of the picture to right. Why am I bothering to tell you it's 2024? Because we've got the 1924 map. Ah, so this is over 100 years old. I say over because in reality, there's what it looks like when you get close up. There's an excavation. The whole wall has fallen down. You can see the layer upon layer. There's the two guys who are collecting things for me. Um, yes, it was sort of a um, hot day. We have long sleeves, not to keep us warm, but to keep the burning sun out. Now, we found some fossils. Um, but what's interesting is we took advantage of a biblical rule from Exodus, uh, authored by Moses, of course, because of God's instruction. And in Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, the God, God says you'll work for six days and uh, you'll rest on the seventh. Now, even though most of the world doesn't do that anymore, most of the West actually started that way. There was a time in Australia when you could not find a shop open on Sunday except where you could buy fresh milk because there was no milk deliveries and no refrigerators. You will not find history in America. In fact, you'll even find rules about Sunday laws where they weren't allowed to work. And these mines were shut down on Sundays. Okay. Oh, do you see what's in the top of that rock? There's fossil footprints. We made a prediction when we started digging this up that because they rested on the seventh day, one day water wasn't pumped in. So one day it was still on the top of the pond and any animal or whatever had a chance to get in the pond. Uh, when did the gold rush occur here? A lady found it. Mrs. Margaret Kennedy, 1851, was doing her washing in the creek and she noticed these lovely gold little nuggets. Bless her heart. And she and a friend lady actually are famous for finding this that they soon ran out of the alluvial gold. But this, is, this pit has come purely after they learned to dig up deeper and get the gold ore out of the quartz, crush the rest and pump it. The maximum age of these fossils is 150 years from the start of the crushing. Um, they, uh, they didn't start crushing until the 1870s and 1880s. And now it's 2024. But there's also plants in it. And surprise, surprise, the long stem plants point towards the end where the pumping is coming from. So there's no doubt about that these plants were washed in. These footprints occurred when it was still enough, but then they were buried really fast so you can even see the structure on the stems um, before the whole lot is crushed. But one thing we do know, not only do you need rapid burial to form fossils, that's why you'll find them around the coal mines in the Philippines if you're brave enough to get inside. Uh, you'll find them in the sewer channels or the piping channels in Manila. Um, rapid burial, it needs to be deep. Why? Particularly to keep oxygen out. Well, on one day when this was first at the top of the pile, oxygen had access to it, but the bugs, the bugs wouldn't have been there at all. Why? Try arsenic. 
dry mercury, dry all the residual minerals they were using, and these still have health warnings on them, right? You don't want to eat this stuff to get the clay caught out. Uh, when you look at this stuff here, it's an ideal anaerobic situation to preserve the fossils really quickly. Now, post-flood fossils, and I'll finish with this section because it's really important. When you look at Noah's flood fossils, you have to remember several things. Before Noah's flood, no rain. Bible's emphatic. Before Noah's flood, no floods. Therefore, no catastrophic destruction of the land, whether it be trees or animals or plants. Just the bones, maybe from death, would lie around. So no real fossil possibility. Noah's flood comes, 40 days and 40 nights of rain. And if you've got it only in the Middle East, there won't be fossils anywhere except the Middle East. Sorry, biologus, but you deserve it. Um, when you have a look at the fossils, it's easy to tell the ones that came post-flood because some of them we've watched form. But if you want to tell Noah's flood, well, here's a volcano, Mount St. Helens. That's what it looked like the first time I saw it. I went there over several decades before it blew up. And what's interesting is this is a post-flood event. It's happened in my lifetime. But Noah's flood starts with the fountains of the deep, the waters below, an awful lot of volcanic activity, an awful lot of sudden volcanic activity, and then the water reaches its limit after 40 days and 40 nights, and that's the rain rather, but then it keeps rising for another 110 days. This means you have a multi-level, a multi-stage flood. Mount St. Helens was pretty impressive. I mean, look, that was the last time I saw it whole. Look at this. There's the famous photos, not taken by me, but uh, uh, one of my colleagues actually was involved in the ICR study that sent uh, them to look at the results of Mount St. Helens, and I went and did the same thing afterwards. Look at that. Aren't you glad the pilot who took that, or his friend who took that, the plane was going the other direction? Otherwise, we wouldn't have these shots. Great stuff. How's that for, I mean, would you love to have seen that coming towards you? The people still recount how they could see it, but they couldn't hear it. That's because the, the ash cloud was traveling faster than the speed of sound, like a jet plane, quite literally. And there's the results. Yes, I've been to Mount St. Helens and I took these pictures here. What you find is we flew over again in a small plane. This is definitely happening after the flood, but you know what was interesting? The water was still coming out of that central core. The water was still pouring out because one of the biggest factors in the volcanic eruption was water. The more water that comes out, the more violent the eruption. Basic Geology 101, if there's very little water, it'll do what happens in Hawaii, creep down the hill, slowly eat the villages that it's doing at the moment, destroy your house while you stand there watching it and taking a video. Not Mount St. Helens. You see flying over the lip. I'll tell you what, my stomach also almost came out of my mouth sometimes. Can you see the spirit lakes in the, in the far north of the picture there? Yeah, we're just about to go over the surface of this, and the destruction was incredible. The wave washed up the hill and down the hill. Yes, massive volcanic shock hit these lakes quite a distance away, destroyed all the trees by stripping of their branches and leaves, and then washed the, the trees up the mountain. Okay, catastrophe, but only on a small scale. I flew over it quite a few times after that, and bit by bit, the lake emptied until finally there's just bits and pieces left floating around Mount St. Helens Spirit Lake. Um, there's what it was one year. You can see the trees standing up vertically. 
there's one of my colleagues actually looking at the trees there. The trees are standing up vertically. They're not sitting on the, the base of the, the lake at all. They scuba dive. And thanks to the ICR paying for these sort of experiments and observations, it was already jet black carbonized stuff from the bottom. Um, yep, I took that picture there. The, the, the logs had actually lost their bark by now. The bark was now separate on the bottom. Uh, they were floating like this. But don't be surprised. Um, there's one of the famous diagrams from this study. Yep, I've actually found that to be true at any time whether you've got a volcanic eruption or whether you've got a flood or whatever, you'd expect to find trees standing upright. You see, here's a unflooded dam in Kentucky. Um, why did I go back there and do all this study? Well, there's what I noticed that the sticks were doing. All trees, all sticks, all grasses, all weeds will actually get buried vertically and sink. They will drown vertically, sink to the bottom standing vertically, and if the ash is there or there's more stuff coming in, they will be buried vertically and form polystrate trees. But this lake is only a small one in Kentucky. Mount St. Helens didn't cover even the whole of Washington. Oh, yes, some of the ash got to Nova Scotia because I think that was where I was when the actual ex the explosion occurred. Hmm, look at that. The vertical ones, the 45-degree ones, and the ones that are floating horizontally. Now, that's why you find inclined logs on a big scale in the coal fields of Scotland, in the, in the Newcastle coal fields, in the Carboniferous. They're characterised by fossils that were like that, but then they were buried before they fell over, or they were buried while they were still standing up, or they were buried while they were still horizontal. So don't look for this on a little scale. It's not the actual sort of fossil that will get you. It's the scale of the beds that it in. Like here am I walking down Tattle River um, not, not long after the eruption has sort of subsided. And uh, you see the fossil tree over there, the, the one that's buried before the new trees have started growing? Let's have a look at the ones that have been washed out. Vertical logs in the ash. Vertical logs now exposed by the ash being washed away. Vertical logs with roots on. And the roots didn't grow there. Yeah, you might find a whole root system, but can I encourage you, go to the ends and you'll find they're broken off. That's how you tell whether it's a fossil forest or whether it actually is a dump. Trees often get ripped up by their roots and they take the whole root system with them. Uh, but here's the important part. Do you see the fossil I spotted? Layer upon layer. Uh, there's some great articles around on how quickly Mount St. Helens form layers and nobody seems to worry about the fact that the layers were all forming at once. This is catastrophic. But air behaves as water. They're both liquids. And one of the trees, look at it. There it is. It's vertical. And it's petrified. Now, you too can go to Wikipedia or Google and hunt down the dates at which these eruptions occurred. Well, what's more important is how big these eruptions are. And Mount St. Helens has a fairly regular system of eruptions. And so don't be surprised in some of the previous eruptions, what's happening now to the trees in the lake there happened in the past, but it was still not on a bigger scale at all. Some of the eruptions were bigger than the last one, but I'll tell you what, none of them covered a global basis. So as we look at Noah's flood, I'm going to go back to the stream now, Sam. I think I am anyway. 
Oh, I've got to go to wave this time, don't I? All right, let me make one last comment on this before we get you to think carefully about the dispersion of, of things after Noah's flood and give you some questions. I have a very important fossil here. It's a jaw. It's actually quite heavy, but I got it out of a limestone caving system and uh, it's a dingo. It, it just looks like the dingoes that live here today. And there's almost no dispute now. These dingoes came to Australia four or so thousand years ago and the Aborigines who come from India and the dingoes who come from India. I mentioned this because yesterday was Australia Day or as some people like to say, Invasion Day. Um, they're the people who want to reject the uh, Christian system at all and they want to go back to the Aboriginals and their claim is we own the land because we've always been here and always will be. Can I tell you something? That's a biologus heresy. They haven't always been here. They're at the Tower of Babel. And they got to the Tower of Babel because they got off Noah's flood. And using fossils as the evidence that the world is so old and there never was a Noah's flood is what Biologus is doing to the peace that we had in Australia. You're encouraging the natives to think they own the land because they've always been here. Well, I don't really want to be political, but I hate to remind every one of us that I don't even own the property that I'm living on. God does. And it's his to give to whoever he wishes to. But can I encourage you in all of these issues, they're not just simple issues about how big the flood was. They're about who, who God is. He is the judge and you have to deal with him as creator, him as the owner of the planet and him as the one who sent a flood which covered all the highest hills under the whole heavens. And by now I've probably upset some of you. I've encouraged others of you. And Sam's probably needs to give us another time of thank yous as well as... Uh, uh, some more questions. Great stuff. Uh, shall we launch into some more thank yous? First of all, coming into Douglas Boffy. First of all, with three British buckaroos, a lemon character waving goodbye while winking and sending a shooting star. Uh, I, 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 I tried my best. Very well as a shooting star, Sam. I mean, try. Okay. Uh, Doki Doki coming in with 149 US buckaroos. A purple moustache. Hang on. Hang on. I can sort of do a purple moustache. If I Hang on. I've, I can't find my lid for my bottle, but I've got a purple water bottle. Here we go. A purple moustache. <laughs> <me. laughs> um, right. Okay. So let's do some questions. We're going to need to make these relatively quick fire, Sam. Why, yeah, why don't we do a quick fire round? Where we do a brief answer to all. Brief as we can, and we'll deal with okay. them a bit later because we've got about five minutes or so before we need yeah. to close things down. So okay, okay. Cecil Pope asks about your trip to the USA. Are you going to be anywhere near Crosbrighton? Crosby, yes. Um, it would be wonderful to come and uh, visit you all down there in Crosbyton, Cecil. I'll do my best to see if we can arrange it, but uh, I'll be in touch and see. But um, we've got no current plans to go to Crosbyton, but it'd be good to call in on you and um, uh, and the uh, the rest of the tailors and the like as well. So uh, we'll uh, I'll, I'll be in touch. Really, okay. what you're after, Joe? You're not blunt enough. Not like me, the Aussie. He needs you people to get in touch with Glenn and say, we want him down here. 
right? That's Thank what he's you. really trying to say, but he's using British niceisms. So get in touch with Glenn, use his phone number, use his email, and tell Glenn, here's what we'd like to do with Joe. And we'll go from there. It sounds good. All right, then. All right. Uh, next question comes in from George Bond. Question, how many fossil graveyards have been discovered with terrestrial and marine creatures buried together? Well, you look for a number or... <laughs> better question would be how many of them have not had that. <laughs> as soon as you go into any kind of large-scale geological deposit, you will almost certainly find terrestrial and marine creatures buried together in some way. It doesn't matter whether it's the Jurassic, Cretaceous, all the way down. Uh, even as far down, potentially, as the Ordovician. I've lost my fossil here. But um, we've certainly found plants in the Ordovician, which is 40 million years or so before they're supposed to have evolved. So... It really is a mess if you're trying to argue for a history of the life on Earth based on the rocks. But, George, there's one other thing that most people miss, including most creation geologists. It's not just the mix of fossils of land and sea that matters. I've got one deposit where I take people, which has got massive, big volcanic, uh, really ring dikes because they formed underwater. And uh, what you've got in the sediments along the volcanic ash sediments alongside of that is pine trees, right? Buried pine trees, plus shallow water sea creatures, plus creatures from 3,000 meters deep, all together. So look for not only mixtures of creatures, but look for the fact that even if they're all the same sort of creature, does this sea creature float near the top? Does this sea creature float near the bottom? So it's way more available evidence of massive, catastrophic, judgmental type uh, evidence on a global scale and remember there will be some fossils that are on top of mountains that have nothing to do with Noah's flood and just as there will be millions of plant fossils like this Triassic one and the Triassic rocks well it simply means three colors nothing to do with millions of years though most of the geological names in, in the column are places they're not positions they're places right so this is Play, a, a name invented in Germany describing the three colours but using the Latin language to do so. And this is an Australian example, and it's called Triassic because the fossils are the same as the Triassic ones where you first started studying them, global evidence. John, we never got on to doing um, the Harper Hill stuff, which we'll have to leave yeah. for another time, but would you like to just uh, show you the little video you sent through earlier? Yes, these are the dangers that we geologists in, in creation research face, not just from the general public, but from the original um, family group of uh, troublemakers on the planet. So you better show them. I was looking for the Harper Hill fossils. <laughs> All right, folks, I'm going to bid you goodbye. I have to go down and care for my wife, but we are seeing improvements in her condition. So we're, thank you for all of you who are praying. Keep praying for Joe, and I'll see you next week, God willing. Bye-bye.
And it's uh, just about, thank you very much, John. It's just about time for us to wrap things up and finish now. We've hit the hour and a half mark. So thank you all very much for joining us. Thank you for all of your questions. Remember, we do hang on to your questions uh, because uh, we will be having some Q&A specials again this year. Uh, we've got one coming up in a little bit. And we've got some great guests lined up for you as well. So continue to support and continue to donate. And yes, as John said, if you want me or to Glenn to come and visit you in the next couple of months in the USA, then get in touch and let us know where you want us uh, and get something organized and we will be able to come and visit. So get in touch. You can email us at info at creationresearchusa.org.org uh, or you can email me personally at Joseph Hubbard at creationresearchuk.com and there are details for getting in touch on all of our creation research websites. So get in touch, organize debates, talks, visits to schools, all the above, uh, it'll be a great time uh, in the States for us that way. So we will see you very soon. And also be before we go, we need to do a plug. We need to do a plug, a plug. newsletter. Sign up for the newsletter, please. Um, make sure you uh, go to uh, www.linkin.bio forward slash creation research, or you can scan that lovely fangled fancy QR code with your smartphone camera, and that will take you to a page where you've got all of our links on there, including how to sign up to our newsletters with direct links to do so. Please do it. It is free. Keeps you up to date with everything to do with creation research, and we don't bombard you with things, do we, Joe or Diane? No, we don't. Only good stuff. Good stuff. Only, Only good, good stuff. stuff. Right, there we go. Yeah, yeah um, do indeed sign up to uh, to the newsletters and continue to support us. Be in touch, and it'll be great to see you. I'll be in the States next time. In fact, next time, I don't know where we'll be, Glenn. We'll be on the road somewhere we'll, next time. So we'll, we'll be in the bayou or in the belly of the alligator. It's yeah, one of the other. <laughs> fun, fun, fun. Right. Hopefully not the latter. <laughs> we'll see you soon. Catch you later, folks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. I would say goodbye if I can find the right button. There we are. Goodbye all. <laughs>